The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Power of Personalized Medicine in AML, Linking Individualized Treatment to Enhanced Patient Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NQY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hey, hello. Yeah, thank you all uh, for running from the other session to uh, this one, as I did. Uh, so uh, looking forward to the discussion, switching gears from the MDS uh, discussions. We had uh, acute myeloid leukemia, and it's a great pleasure to have uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Amir Fati, uh, who will be leading this discussion uh, with me. So very briefly, I'm going to give an introduction. Uh, acute myeloid leukemia, very exciting progress over the last five years. I mean, a lot of the molecular and biological progress happened over the last two decades, and we have to give credit to a lot of that work that led to the eventual culmination of approvals. And these are the nine therapies that have been approved now in the last four to five years, and in fact, many others are in advanced phase three development uh, that we hope will also join uh, this group of therapies in the near future. Uh, Still, we have many, many unmet needs. The overall survival today for a newly diagnosed AML, if you take all ages, is still probably in the 35-40% range. So even though we are making progress, uh, we still are uh, way behind, for example, the ALL and multiple myeloma colleagues. But hopefully, things are improving uh, already with these new drugs available, and we'll talk about some of the applications of them. I think one of the key things in a plug we want to put in here is for clinical trial enrollment. Uh, This statistic is sobering and actually quite depressing, uh, showing that in the patients who are diagnosed in community, real-world setting, uh, with acute myeloid leukemia, uh, 600-plus patients, uh, we see that uh, many of these patients, 60%, two-thirds of patients, did not receive any therapy. Now, hopefully this will change in the last uh, five and oncoming five to ten years with the advent of venetoclax, FLT3 inhibitors, IDH, many of which are specifically designed to be given to older unfit AML and have been found to be effective and safe. But this is the data we have. And as you see, genomic testing, we talk about it all the time, but only 13% had this. So that's quite sad and hopefully will improve a lot of educational activities like this one are pushing for genomic testing and integrated off-targeted therapies. And then COVID, of course, did not help matters. Clinical trial enrollment has dropped, but we at MD Anderson and uh, other centers, Dr. Fati will discuss, are actually seeing a rebound of referrals and increasing numbers, and hopefully this will allow many of our trials to get back on track and hopefully culminate in new approvals of therapies. Um, So um, with that, I'm gonna move on to the uh, presentation here. So we're going to kind of divide this by cases, um, and we're going to try to talk about these cases. So for this first one, I'm going to uh, present this older patient with therapy-related acute myeloid leukemia, 75-year-old patient, has a bone marrow-confirmed acute myeloid leukemia, let's say had some form of prior chemotherapy for uh, another prior uh, lung cancer, lymphoma, many years ago, very common group. You know, we're seeing that people with other tumors are living much longer, which is great but it also means that we're actually seeing a lot more therapy-related AML in the last few years. Uh, We do mutation analysis. We find ASXL1, RUNX1, MLL. MLL is quite common in patients with prior topoisomerase inhibitor exposure, ECOG performance status one or two. So here I'm gonna throw it to uh, Dr. Fatih to see what would be his thoughts on the 75-year-old patient, consider venetoclax, consider other options, transplant soon, what do you think? 
Thanks so much, Novel, for having me. It's great to see everyone here uh, after so long a period of not going to uh, meetings and seeing a lot of you. It's very nice to see you, and I want to thank folks for having me on the panel and also to be here with Novel is, is, uh, is wonderful. Um, so 75-year-old therapy-related AML, performance status of not so great, maybe two, one to two. Generally, the conventional approach uh, for this patient is a combination of a uh, hypomethylating agent, either decidabine or azacitidine, plus venetoclax. That's the typically re the recommended approach. Of course, there are other uh, potential options. You know, low-dose RSC and venetoclax is also another potential option. Let's say his performance status is one and he looks pretty spry to you. I don't think pursuing intensive therapy is wrong necessarily in a 75-year-old. We've induced patients in their late 70s and 80s, depending on how well they've looked. Uh, perhaps we're in the minority, but we have on certain situations. And then the remaining question there is subsequent transplant, which is just a topic that Novel and I were discussing earlier today, which is, would you pursue a transplant in a 75-year-old? Uh, I told him the story, which I, I guess it's not wrong to repeat here. We had a, a patient uh, present to our cancer center. She looked quite fit. She was 78. Uh, we gave her treatment. She went into a remission, and after much debate, we did a bone marrow uh, transplant, and she did great. Um, she was from another uh, country, didn't speak much English, and a few months after the transplant, we found out that she had fibbed a bit, and actually she was near 85. So, um, so I, it just goes to show you that transplant modalities, I think, have advanced and have changed a bit um, in the sense that they are uh, more and more tolerable and perhaps are more broadly applicable to a, a wider group of uh, patients. So I think Dr. Fatih just convinced the transplanters to look at the birth certificate or driver's <laughs> license. <laughs> Background check. Yeah. But no, I, I, I think for a 75-year-old, you know, honestly, I would say that we would treat all of them on a, at MD Anderson on a HMA VEN or some form of VEN-based uh, regimen. Uh, we'll discuss later some of the cladribine combinations, et cetera. We really have moved away from intensive chemo. Yes, there's the occasional 1% or 2% core binding factor isolated NPM1 where if it's a marathon runner and we're going for a five-year 80% cure, we would consider it. But I think VEN-based is really where 98 99% of these patients would go. And I totally agree with you. You know, we've had a lot of discussions with our transplanters in the last few months. And uh, just like in leukemia, there's a lot of progress in transplant. They have better GVHD medications. They have T-cell therapies for many viral infections post-transplant. And they're actually very comfortable now. They told us to consider up to 77, 78, which a decade ago was about 72, 73. So we refer all our patients up to 70, 78, 77, 78 to consider transplant. And that's probably the approach I would do here, then based and then transplant uh, and then go from there. Now, on the other side, you have a, a little bit different uh, patient, also has a secondary AML, prior MDS, was on erythropoietin alone, has the bad actor uh, cytogenetics, deletion 7, deletion 5, ASXL1. So we see these with alkylating agent prior exposure. And uh, the question here is now, what would we do? Would we still consider VEN-based? Would we think here now CPX or 7 plus 3 and the role for transplant? So, Amir, your thoughts? So yeah, this situation is a, a little bit uh, different. I think the goal here in the back of my mind is always how do I get this patient to a stem cell transplant? It appears that based on at least the limited amount of information we have, this patient is a potentially curable uh, patient with a very uh, with a number of sort of high risk features: secondary AML, ugly mutations, ugly cytogenetics. 
Um, so the general approach is to try and get them to transplant. CPX351 is approved uh, for patients with secondary AML that sort of fit in this age group and um, uh, sort of fall into this category. So I think that is a very reasonable option. Uh, I would say that there are some centers that even would consider potentially giving venetoclax-based uh, treatment uh, for these patients, the goal of which is then, again, still to follow with a transplant in the hopes of uh, curing them. But as was mentioned earlier by Dr. Daubert, you know, we don't cure uh, most of our patients still, right? So, um, you know, the 50 or 60 percent of patients that uh, percent of patients that are not cured oftentimes, unfortunately, fall into these categories. So the goal is really to drive down the disease as much as possible, followed by stem cell transplant to cure it. Uh, so just some NCCN guidelines uh, data. This is just to sort of focus our attention on older patients. Of course, if you have targetable alterations, uh, favorable risk cytogenetics, FLT3 mutations, there are some uh, caveats to consider. But our focus is really on the bottom two categories there, those patients who have secondary AML and are fit for induction chemotherapy, and those uh, who are uh, candidates for HMA-based, uh, venetoclax-based uh, treatment. All right, so let's talk about CPX. CPX is a 5 to 1 molar ratio a liposomal product of anthracycline, donorubicin, and uh, cytarabine. So cytarabine 5 to donorubicin 1. Um, and uh, it's important, even though that it doesn't really, CPX doesn't have a, a, the sort of anthracycline in its name, it's important to keep be mindful of lifetime uh, uh, anthracycline dose. So if patients have previously received anthracyclines for whatever uh, cancer, uh, it's important to uh, keep that in mind. Um, the initial uh, data that emerged was approximately six, seven years ago with randomized phase two data and then uh, phase three randomized study looking at uh, secondary AML, both therapy-related as well as AML with MDS-related changes uh, uh, demonstrated a survival advantage followed by approval in patients uh, that sort of uh, fell into that category. Although the trials were age-limited, uh, the approval uh, was was uh, more uh, liberal and applied to all patients who were uh, induction eligible. So this is uh, data that actually is relatively uh, recently presented or published in Lancet Hematology, looking at the five-year results of that phase three trial. And you see the survival curve there on the left, uh, based on sort of uh, from the time point of randomization, uh, showing the uh, fairly impressive and sustained uh, survival advantage of CPX351 over seven and three in these uh, high-risk uh, secondary AML patients. Um, the box on the right uh, has a red, uh, there's a red box around it, uh, and it's highlighted. And I think it's, and the reason for that is I think is sort of where I think the, the, my interest actually lies here, because these are patients that made it out uh, to transplant, and, and folks that made it to transplant with CPX351 did much better than individuals uh, who did so with 7 and 3. So that, that too is a remarkable finding. You know, almost 50% of patients who were transplanted after uh, CPX351 had uh, long-term survival. So that's a, a, a crucial element to uh, the potential promise of this agent. Um, so uh, looking at uh, younger patients, age 60 to 69, uh, again, you see the survival advantage of CPX351. This is a recent blood advances paper. Looking at older uh, patients, uh, again, uh, 70 to 75, these are folks that generally have uh, poor outcomes uh, with any uh, therapy historically, but there is a very uh, wide difference. Again, this is subgroup analysis, but shows you that uh, the survival advantage pretty much carried over in various age groups and by various analyses. Okay, so 
the challenge is you have uh, effective therapies that broadly apply to overlapping population of patients, uh, older patients, let's say. Um, and do we know the answer, for example, of whether azacitidine or decitabine plus venetoclax uh, is better or worse than CPX351 uh, for, let's say, an older patient uh, who is uh, fit? Um, or, uh, you know, a, perhaps a slightly younger patient uh, with comorbidity that you're debating whether you want to give them CPX in the hopes of trying to take them to uh, transplant. There were two retrospective studies that were presented at this last year's uh, ASH meeting that were not prospective, but were, you know, looked at uh, multiple centers. Um, and they demonstrated some interesting, though not uh, uh, definitive results. Uh, there seemed to be, in, in one of the presentations uh, that uh, was presented uh, uh, from a consortium of uh, uh, Cornell, Northwestern, Moffitt, and MSK, that the overall survival seemed to, uh, the advantage seemed to be with CPX over Veneto, uh, venetoclax-based platforms. However, it, it did appear that uh, the majority of the benefit was uh, driven by uh, transplant. And it's not surprising because there was a bit of an age discordance, right? So most of the patients on these retrospective analyses that received CPX were younger, and most of them that received then HMA were older and probably not, uh, not as likely to be uh, transplant candidates. So in patients who did not go to transplant, outcomes were the same between CPX uh, and the HMA Ven arms. Another study um, that was also uh, presented, I, I believe, led by the, the Penn Group, showed very interesting findings, fairly similar idea, um, that there was, at least in this study, there was a similar overall survival, but the use of transplant was critical for overall survival benefit in these patients, and the therapeutic choice did not influence survival when you controlled uh, for transplant. And as you see there in that um, uh, Kaplan-Meier curve on the left, whether you received Venaza uh, or CPX, but went to transplant, those top two lines, like you could make the argument that Van Asa may be a little bit higher up than the CPX arm, uh, though that ultimately was the determinant of how well or not well these patients ended up doing. Again, retrospective studies. I, I, just a plug uh, for one of the trials that we're doing, uh, along with many uh, collaborators uh, across the country, we're conducting a prospective study now of comparing um, Van HMA uh, versus conventional induction, uh, whether it's Vixios or 7 and 3, it's a randomized phase 2 study to hopefully better answer this question in perspective fashion. So some practical uh, points regarding CPX. Um, uh, it's approved for patients 18 and up uh, who are induction eligible, um, and, and I assume it says here in pediatric patients, I don't know as much about that, with therapy-related AML and AML with MDS-related changes. In the phase three study, uh, uh, I always say uh, CPX is great uh, in sort of the front end of treatment. There are less GI uh, side effects, less mucositis, and almost no hair loss. Uh, patients just, you know, fly through it. The first week or two is, is grand. Um, there is, as a result, uh, I think to a certain degree, less 30 and six-day uh, mortality. The challenge with CPX, of course, is sort of the back end of that induction course when you have prolonged neutropenias, prolonged thrombocytopenias, and the risk of complications from that. And that's an important uh, consideration. Um, uh, and obviously, importantly here is the composite uh, remission improvement and the overall survival advantage that led to uh, the approval uh, of this uh, agent. 
So just to sort of finish up this here, uh, next steps uh, with uh, CPX, uh, you know, there is an ongoing VFAST trial that is looking at um, uh, CPX with multiple different partners, including a FLIT3 inhibitor, IDH inhibitors, uh, and venetoclax. Some early data was uh, presented uh, that looked at uh, decently uh, interesting uh, composite remission rates when uh, uh, CPX was uh, combined with venetoclax. But I, I think we need additional data to sort of uh, uh, move forward from that. Okay, so on to the next case. Before I do that, I just want to uh, just ask my good colleague, uh, Dr. Daver, if he had any additional thoughts or questions regarding the slides that I presented that have come up, and um, we can maybe go back and forth and see if there is anything else. Yeah, I think while people are answering questions, so I, I think that's really fascinating uh, data, right, that basically what really matters is getting people to transplant in remission, uh, whether you do it with a VEN-based or CPX, at least in those two. And we have to acknowledge these are retrospective multi-center, but the effort was made, which is good. It seemed like both were valid. Uh, and, you know, I want to commend you, Amir, for the study you're doing. I think this will be a major, important milestone study either way, right? Azaven versus intensive chemo in 18 to 75 population with intermediate high risk, because if that is even equal in my mind, and for many of us at MD Anderson, I think this will potentially put chemo for a majority of AML, not all, you know, at rest to a large extent. So I think this will be very critical uh, data. But today, as you said, you know, we do uh, consider CPX in the fitter patients with transplant, uh, but HMA Ven also remains one of the kind of top options. Yeah. I think uh, there are so many uh, remnant questions around uh, these topics, right? Intensive therapy were, were versus less intensive therapy. We didn't really have less intensive therapy options that were effective 10 years ago. We, we do now. Can we bring that to the larger group of AML patients? That's an open question. The fact that you know, these retrospective studies seem to suggest getting to transplant is the key to drive survival suggests to me Perhaps we don't know, and that's part of this uh, attempt to look at this a little bit deeper with this prospective study, that there probably is not that degree of difference between uh, depth of remission among the two uh, patient populations, um, because oftentimes MRD negativity, depth of remission is what drives success following transplant. So we're hoping to show that also um, with, the, with this study using uh, NGS and both flow and flow cytometry as MRD. Um, uh, assessments uh, for patients who are receiving therapy prior to transplant. On top of that, there are quality of life issues, right? So if I'm sure patients are much happier, uh, despite how easy or difficult an induction regimen is, to receive that therapy at home uh, without having to sit in the hospital for up to 40, 45 days. So I think that that part of it um, is also important. And one final thing I will say, it's an aspect of uh, the type of work that uh, Novel uh, and uh, his colleagues are doing is doublets, um, these outpatient regimens are really the uh, framework upon which you build the triplets and quadruplets and the triple somersaults and everything else that sort of follow along uh, and the future of uh, therapies uh, for AML um, and uh, diseases like it. So anyway, I think it's an exciting period. And with that said, I have 12 seconds to move on to the next um, clinical <laughs> consult. So, uh, George, a 75-year-old patient uh, presenting with uh, therapy-related AML. He has uh, IDH1 mutation, twist, and a RUNX1 mutation along with his uh, MLL or KMT2A uh, rearrangement. 
but testing also confirms the uh, presence of uh, the um, feared and hated uh, TP53 mutation along with uh, the performance status of one or two. So uh, this is something that uh, Dr. Adava and I are going to discuss here. So what are the options for George? Uh, CPX, is that an option? Venetoclax-based therapy? Uh, jump to transplant? Or what do we do with transplant? Or is that an option? Or does it work? Or are there other approaches that may uh, show promise, uh, many of which uh, Novel is very familiar with? So um, I'll ask Novel, what, what is your, let's say you have this patient 75 years old with this sort of range. What is your, what is, what is your approach to this patient? Yeah, so I mean, it's not that uncommon really to see TP53 mutation having some other potentially targeted, you know, about 50% of TP53 are isolated, have nothing else, but we do see sometimes IDH, very rarely FLT3 uh, as well, and, and always the question is which mutation to kind of target uh, first. In most experiences, TP53, especially at a higher allelic burden, you know, above 20, some studies have shown above 40, becomes the driver mutation for the outcome, the clinical outcome. So for this patient, you know, if I have trials available at MD Anderson, we would today go for a CD47-based approach, whether it's with MAGRA, which has more data, but there are others out there as well, ALX, uh, TTI, and very much try to move to transplant quickly, potentially even within two cycles, achieving marrow remission. This is a patient where I would not wait for the ideal MRD negativity. The saying is do not let perfect be the enemy of good because we know that only 10% or less will achieve MRD negativity. So if we can get them into a marrow remission control state, get to transplant, there's actually a lot of emerging data. Charlie Craddock and the British group have published, uh, our group has published, uh, Dr. Oran and others, that you could have about 30, 35% long-term survival. It's not great, but it's better than zero to five percent without transplant. So that's kind of what I would probably try for this patient today. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's just difficult. I mean, P53, we don't have an answer. Um, and I think to probably the best answer is to get them on a clinical trial uh, with a, a novel uh, therapy combination with HMA. Um, but short of that, we've tried everything. We've tried Azoven, the cytobine ven, 10-day, the cytobine, CPX, CPX plus something. Uh, he has a target, IDH1. You could potentially try combining that, uh, adding that. So it's sort of the, it becomes difficult because you're desperate to get these patients to transplant to buy time. There is some data coming out of um, Moffitt mainly that says driving down uh, the uh, P53 clone uh, might uh, lead to uh, success following transplant, but that's difficult to assess, of course, because you may just be selecting uh, for patients that are more likely to respond, and therefore that's why they also have better outcomes following transplant. Um, so I agree that the sooner you can get patients to transplant, the, the better you, chance you have uh, for them to have success. So with that, I'm going to hand uh, over the platform here to uh, Dr. Dauber to go through some slides. Okay, so thank you uh, to Dr. Fatih. I'm gonna go through some of the data in TP53. It's all unfortunately quite depressing, so hopefully you're all eating dessert now because <laughs> this is, <laughs> may put a sour taste. But unfortunately, uh, HMA VEN or VEN-based therapies, which we all hoped three, four years ago at SOHO and similar meetings, we were all excited, response rates were great, 
in every molecular subset and we hope that would pan out to survival and unfortunately for TP53 it didn't. Pretty much every other molecular subset has had some degree of benefit with VEN-based therapies. Uh, it's different uh, with NPM1 IDH1 where the benefit is huge. FLIT3 there's some benefit uh, but with TP53 I think we're kind of really back at the drawing board back five years ago where we're ending up with survival five to seven months. Three different data sets have now shown this. The phase 1B, the phase 3 Viale subset analysis and then our MD Anderson decided to be in 10 day venetoclax all five to seven months. So uh, we really need to find other strategies. Then the hope was maybe CPX has this unique liposomal formulation, better bone marrow penetration. Maybe there will be something special for TP53. And actually what we found was TP53 was one of the main subsets that had almost no benefit. Again, in the mutated, you see five-month survival with both CPX and 7 plus 3. In fact, the non-mutated seemed to be the ones that actually were overall doing better. And you can see that there is a uh, tail there uh, at about 40%. So, uh, you know, what about allogenic stem cell transplant? And I think this is a very tricky area. You know, people come to these meetings or uh, talk to people and get a, with the idea that we should not do transplant. And I absolutely don't want to say that we should do transplant TP53, but the transplant outcome is poor. The outcome without transplant is horrible. It's pretty much close to 0%. We have very, very, very few patients who are alive. So transplant still has a curative potential. It's not a huge curative potential, but three different data sets now in the last couple of years have shown 35% or so can achieve long-term survival in TP53 mutated who move to transplant with whatever approach. Those are probably the little bit better actors, people with low allelic burdens, things like that. But our approach today at MD Anderson and many other centers are looking at using some form of therapy, debulking disease, moving to transplant, and then potentially doing unique novel approaches post-transplant with maintenance, whether it's with HMA-based maintenance or new cellular therapy maintenance approaches with NK cells, DLIs, et cetera. So I really think we should transplant uh, these patients if we can get them debulked and uh, work closely with our transplant colleagues. What about some of the new approaches that we hope will uh, have some breakthroughs, especially for TP53? So the one that at this point is the lead is a CD47 SERP alpha. This is a, a macrophage immune checkpoint. Uh, we discussed this a lot in the MDS session because in fact the MDS study, the phase three of 500 plus patients just completed accrual last week. So we will hopefully see that randomized phase three uh, d data in the next few months. But in AML, there are efforts as well. And so what you're doing here is you're basically kind of trying to harness macrophages by releasing them from inhibition and allowing them to attack the tumor cells. Uh, so this is the uh, data that was most recently updated from the single arm study, a randomized study is ongoing. And uh, here you see the overall response rate is about 50% with a true CR rate of 33%. With HMA Ven, we see a true CR rate of about 25%, maybe a little bit better. I think the advantage here is it's less myelosuppressive, neutropenia thrombocytopenia, and we are able to get patients to transplant. If you can transplant them, again, the recurrent theme, that's really where you start seeing one and two year survivals of close to 50% or more. And the study right now is now into a randomized study of about 400 patients of azamagro versus azaven or three plus seven. So it's gonna be the first kind of TP53 target approach investigators can choose whether they want to give intensive chemo or HMA Ven as a comparator, and that study is probably going to take a couple of years till we see the data, but the enrollment is ongoing. So just to highlight that point, you know, as a single agent, all patients, 11 months, 
on its own doesn't look that great, but when you look at it in the setting of HMA van or HMA alone, about five to seven months is what we got. So there may be some improvement, and I think in TP53 we have to look for these incremental improvements, but again, getting to transplant has a big impact uh, on improving that survival more towards a curative rather than a few months median outcome. So I think with that, uh, let me ask Amir if he has any thoughts or questions that we want to take? I, I, I would love to get your thoughts uh, specifically. You know, some of the data that you presented here is highly promising with a very nice median overall survival for this challenging group, a nice duration of response. I think something that's in the back of people's minds is as you collect more data, collect more patients, uh, we hope and anticipate that that will stay steady. Um, how uh, optimistic are you that um, CD47 antibodies or SERP1-alpha um, targeting agents in combination with HMA are really going to move the field? Do you think that that is the class of drug that's going to do it um, over time? So I see a lot of investors are taking their books out. <laughs> so, no, no, I'm just, no, I'm I, just curious. I mean, I think yeah. for all of us, we're, yeah. we're curious. I was actually just on a call yesterday with uh, some of our European colleagues. And, and is it going to be a breakthrough, like, uh, you know, overnight we're going to cure? Absolutely not. Will there be incremental benefit a few months? I think yes. But I think that's the realistic proposition we have to look at, right? For three decades, we've all been kind of looking for the silver bullet. It's not there, and even in preclinical work, there's nothing that suggests it's going to be there. So if we get a few months from this, then we develop NK cell strategies, we get a few months from that. I mean, you, if you go to the ALL session, I think this is the reality of how they achieved it, right? You add the ENO, you add the Blina, you adjust the dosing, you bring the CAR-T. So I think that is the eventual approach, and hopefully, you know, at least we get some marginal progress, and then we can build on that. That's, yeah. that's kind of what I... There's, yeah, I mean, the, the other consideration also is that um, as, as sort of time passes and we learn more about P53, we, we sort of learn also there's P53 and then there's P53. I think the location of the mutation matters. I think the, the amount of allelic uh, burden matters. I think the presence of complex karyotype prior treatment matters. Co-mutations probably matter. So some, of, some patients with P53 mutations I will do better than others. And I think it's on us to try and figure that, figure out who will and who will respond to these sort of uh, combinations over time. So I, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of folks uh, that uh, I've talked and worked with over time, when they see P53, you know, oh my God, we're done. I don't know if that is the case necessarily in every instance. It's just that we know it's a bad player, but we don't know enough about it to uh, sort of uh, help hopefully prognosticate uniformly for patients. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if anything, I think APR and MAGR have at least put TP53 in the forefront, right? Five years ago, you would see a minimal discussion in the corner, you know, two minutes. So now there's a huge discussion. And usually it's those efforts, maybe it's not the first or second shot, that will eventually lead to progress. Right. We saw this with FLIT3, with uh, MLL. So that is hopefully what will happen in the next few years for TP53. So now we'll move on to the targeted uh, platforms here. So I don't know, do we have, okay, so we have a case here. So this is now looking at a patient, 70-year-old, has clear comorbidities, hypertension, CHF, stents, diabetes. So definitely a 70-year-old, but kind of older 70-year-old. Uh, bone marrow 75% blast, diploid cytogenetics, and the question here are what are the options for this patient, venetoclax-based therapies, 
other low intensity, whether it's with VEN or other uh, low intensity approaches. And then provocative question, of course, what if this patient had an IDH1? And of course, this is getting at the agile data that uh, uh, Amir will uh, be discussing. So I'll turn it over here to you, Amir, to kind of discuss these uh, aspects. All right, I'm gonna try and speed up a little bit because I've, I think we've just been having too much fun up here. So um, we're gonna talk about uh, specifically uh, patients uh, without actionable mutations and what our options are at this point. Here's some of the data from the NCCN guidelines and try and sort of hammer in a little bit. All right, so um, pretty much for every AML doc, uh, these uh, curves are sort of somewhere in the back of our brains. Uh, so we've, we've seen them so many times. The combination of N-Aza versus Aza and placebo uh, showing uh, marked uh, improvement in overall survival uh, for the former 15 months, median overall survival. That's remarkable, um, considering the fact that uh, these patients were either 75 and up or had marked comorbidity. And on top of that, we're talking about a composite remission rate of around 65%. Actually, you don't uh, probably ask for much more than that with traditional induction therapy in this, uh, in this age group of patients. So this is a, a big accomplishment um, in terms of advancing uh, our field. Uh, it is uh, currently, I would say, the conventional approach for newly diagnosed AML patients who are older or for whatever reason uh, due to comorbidity or functional status are uh, not appropriate for intensive therapies. It is well tolerated uh, with a good 30-day uh, and 60-day mortality. It does not come without risk. So this is something I repeat a lot at uh, various educational sessions. So. Azacitidine and venetoclax, decitabine and venetoclax, they're not the same as azacitidine alone or decitabine alone. They're much more marrow suppressive. They're different in the time to response. You know, usually you gave aza to AML or MDS patients. You did a marrow at three months or four months and see if you had a response. Sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. With HMA-VEN, you can't do that. You can't take your hand off the wheel. You should do a marrow very early to see whether you've emptied out the marrow because if you keep treating every 28 days without looking, you can, it can lead to significant neutropenias, thrombocytopenias, and complications, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So early bone marrow assessment, uh, interruption of venetoclax if there is marrow, the marrow is uh, ablated or empty, uh, especially in patients who have cleared their blasts, particularly so, is recommended. You delay up to two weeks and then resume when there is some count recovery, and I would recommend actually reducing the duration of venetoclax by that point, although there is some debate around that, but that is my uh, general approach, reduce the duration from 28 days to 21 days, and then subsequently may have to reduce it to 14 or even seven in uh, subsequent cycles that sort of come along. The goal is in patients in whom you give azacitidine and venetoclax is to make sure that they can get this therapy continuously, not to just hammer their marrow every uh, 28 days. You're trying to get them to a response and to keep them there without getting hurt, especially in this patient population. So, um, this is, again, basically saying what I just said. So um, hypermethylating agents are generally given for the first five days in the case of cytidine, seven days in the case of azacitidine, and the duration of venetoclax is 28 days, and the dose of venetoclax is 400 milligrams, although that is reduced if you're on a concurrent a medicine that can impact CYP3A enzymes such as azoles, but also other medicines too, in, in which case you have to reduce the dose of venetoclax. 
Um, and then you monitor these patients closely. Some institutions give antimicrobial prophylaxis. We don't in Boston, but many do. I think uh, that uh, is an approach. In the first few days, monitoring for TLS is recommended, although I would say the risk of TLS is pretty low, um, but it happens, and when it happens, it can be pretty ugly. So generally, we recommend hospitalization for the first two, three days. It's rare that I don't do that, um, particularly in patients uh, who have a higher white blood cell count. And as I mentioned, this is not HMA-alone therapy. Patients will drop their blood counts. They will require uh, transfusions. Um, they will need to be monitored for fevers. And even though it's an outpatient treatment, many patients end up getting hospitalized um, if they have an infection or, or a fever. The timing of the bone marrow biopsy in the first cycle is important. It says here day 28, but that's towards the end of the cycle. I typically do it earlier than that. So I have that data at around day 28 to 29 to make a decision about when I'm going to start cycle two. So I usually do a bone marrow biopsy around day 23, around there. And if the marrow is empty, I hold the venetoclax and I give them time to recover their counts before I hit them again with another cycle of treatment because, as I mentioned, cumulative marrow suppression is a big problem. And for the subsequent cycles, I reduce the duration of venetoclax if neutropenia and thrombocytopenia are issues. Um, and the same applies for subsequent cycles. Subsequent cycles, you don't, uh, you know, I forgot to mention, there is a dose uh, escalation during the first few days of treatment, 100, 200, 400, or the uh, appropriate uh, dose for concurrent azoles. You don't need to do that for subsequent cycles, and the duration of venetoclax may need to be reduced. Um, and usually by the end of the first cycle or end of cycle two, the marrow should demonstrate suppression of blasts, either an MLFS, a CRI, or if you're lucky, a CR. Most individuals will get that by the end of cycle two. If they don't, that's not the best sign in the world. Although I will say that I had a patient not too long ago who achieved his remission after cycle four. Um, so because this patient, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, had an IDH1 mutation, it's important to also mention that there is another kid on the block, uh, ivocidinib in combination with azacitidine, was just recently shown in a placebo-controlled phase three study to be superior um, to azacitidine and placebo, and markedly so, whether it was event-free survival or overall survival, and the median overall survival went above 20 months, which is highly remarkable. So now you have these two options uh, for patients with IDH1 mutations, um, uh, I, and you know, if you give them HMA Venn, that's not so bad either. Those patients also did pretty well, uh, that subgroup with HMA Venn too. So it's a remarkable uh, option uh, for those patients. So. Dr. Dover and his colleagues at the MD Anderson here, uh, Tappan Kadia, um, uh, uh, published recently some very impressive results of uh, cladribine, uh, LDAC uh, plus venetoclax, uh, alternating with HMA and venetoclax uh, in patients who are older. Um, and and I, I believe it was age 60 and up and showed a very impressive uh, survival curve here. Um, as well as a very high rate of composite remission. So venetoclax is sort of a dancing partner. You kind of give it with something else, and it just makes things better, at least in terms of uh, efficacy. And not only do you have a very nice uh, rate of composite remission, a, lot, a good number of them uh, were actually MRD negative, which just shows you sort of the depth of remission. Where these combinations will ultimately go in comparison to HMA, venetoclax is an open question, but they will require additional study. Here are two other studies published um, recently, one with FLAG-IDA and venetoclax, uh, and uh, CLIA and venetoclax, both more intensive options, plus uh, the obesity PCL2 inhibitor, 
One thing I will mention, we have limited amount of experience in Boston with 7 and 3 in venetoclax. In general, it gets tricky when you combine venetoclax with intensive regimens because you do worry a little bit about fairly severe marrow suppression. So I think dosing and scheduling is very important and uh, figuring that out. And I think the, uh, the folks uh, that have run these studies have done a lot of work to try and demonstrate what is the best way to sequence and dose uh, these uh, therapies and combinations. All right, I think I went through that fairly briskly, but I think we maybe have about um, you know a minute to sort of uh, talk about the previous section. I don't know if Dr. Dover, what your thoughts are about venetoclax and uh, combinations and how you use um, HMA-Ven in your uh, group of patients. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the HMA-Ven combo is highly effective. You know, nicely you uh, brought up the IDH issue. I, I mean, I think if this patient had an IDH mutation, then the big question is, do you use aza-ivacitinib uh, for the IDH1 or HMA-Ven? And, you know, I think that's something that we will likely not truly be able to resolve because I don't see anybody planning to randomize study of aza-ven versus aza-ivo. But the data looks very good with the Agile study, the 24-month median survival. But, of course, the caveat is you have to get the mutation result, which... I think in big academic centers and in a lot of Europe where this study was done is now happening within four to five days, but in most community and even in many academic uh, smaller centers in the U.S. could take two weeks. So I think in that scenario, I probably would not want to wait two weeks. I would just move with HMA-Ven and then leave the IDH uh, for the next stage. So I think uh, you know data is one thing, but uh, logistics and practicality often have to be taken into account. Uh, but yeah, and, and as you mentioned, we are looking at... Uh, uh, combination with cladribine lotus ARC, which looks very, very encouraging in this 65 to 75, 80 group population, um, as well as the intensive chemo VEN, which is quite myelosuppressive, but for the younger, very fit, selected patients, could be a very good uh, option. So I want to put you on the spot because you're good on the spot. Um, <laughs> let's say you do get the IDH1 mutation back in time, um, and your patient wants to asks you. Um, the options on the table, and you sort of go through HMA-Ven, you give the data, which is there, and you go through AZA-IVO. Um, and, you know, how do you make that decision for the patient, and what do you usually decide? Yeah, I, I think most educated patients, right, if you actually show them the data, I mean, we often compare about statistics and the issues of cross-trial comparison, but in reality, in most human decisions, we actually just get to see what we get to see, right? And we have this data. So Dan Polier recently published in Clinical Cancer Research with IDH1 mutation. It was 15.8 months, the survival. And this one's 24 months. So, I mean, I think if I showed these two to the patient, he would say, well, if there's no equipoise, then 24 looks better than to me. And, and, and that's the reality, right? And until and unless somebody's a randomized study, I think we will be stuck with these cross-trial comparisons. And in that setting, the 24 does look uh, better than what we've seen with these events. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I had a patient recently, that's the reason I asked that, who's, who did the exact same math. And he was like, well, you give, you know, 15, 16 months, you get HMA Ven, but then if I progress, I guess for relapse refractory, I was citing, what is it, about 9 to 10 months. So it comes out exactly to 24. And if I get HMA IVO, I'm not sure if there are any options. I was like, dude, you got to stop with the math. Yeah. Let's just pick one of these. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll, go, we'll go with it. It's, it's a tough one. I think for me, I don't think there is a right answer. But I will say that HMA venetoclax is, is, is a bit more cytoreductive. So if you have a patient who is quite proliferative, I worry a little bit about using HMA-IVO in that setting. 
um, because you know it, it does take a bit longer uh, to achieve marrow response, and you may not have sort of the time and space to not get in trouble at least or during the first few weeks. That's one potential consideration. The other one is the side effect uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, aspects differ, right? So differentiation syndrome is also a concern with ivocidinib and something you need to uh, think about. So with that said, um, let's just go through the next case and I'll hand over uh, the uh, uh, podium to Dr. Doffer. So Carol is a 70-year-old patient uh, with hypertension and diabetes, good performance status, uh, unfortunately uh, diagnosed with AML, uh, I assume has normal cytogenetics and a FLT3 mutation. So is VEN-based uh, therapy still an option? It's a good question. Uh, how about a FLT3 inhibitor combination of some sort? How would you combine it? Is transplant the right approach? And after a transplant, uh, would you consider FLT3 maintenance therapy? And finally, a lot of the work that Novel himself has done quite a bit of are combination therapies outside of traditional chemo with uh, FLT3 inhibitors. All right. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, and I think that's, those are the questions we all grapple with, you know, and, and of course I didn't mention, but there is the approach of could you combine them up front, you know, Azevin, Ivo, and uh, Dr. Donardo and others in our group are, are looking at that. So hopefully in a couple of years we'll have all these three data sets matured and, and be able to make those decisions. And in FLT3, I think that same thought process is, is moving even more quickly, and I'll kind of show uh, why we think for FLT3 there's an urgent need to kind of improve uh, current therapy for older unfit patients. So these are the uh, NCCN guidelines for patients with FLT3 mutated uh, disease. Induction with mitostorin based on the Ratify study is the current uh, category one guideline for this population, but there is also emerging data with Quisartinib that I will show you, which looks also quite encouraging. So this is the uh, 3 plus 7 mitostorin versus 3 plus, place, 3 plus 7 placebo. You all have probably heard about this and seen this slide many, many, many times. This was actually the first of those nine drugs that got FDA approval. And uh, here you see that the survival was improved, but the absolute survival benefit was about 7%. Nonetheless, uh, as we discussed, this is incremental progress. And then once you actually took these patients to transplant, which should be the goal, and in the recent years, we actually are transplanting a big proportion of our younger than 65, 70 with the FLT3 mutated, you could really start seeing encouraging survival with four-year survivals getting above 60%, which is very good given that FLT3 mutated disease, two decades ago when it was first identified, the five-year survivals were in the 20, 25% rate. But again, using the FLT3 inhibitor and transplant is really where things started to improve uh, quite a bit. So could you then start using a better FLT3 inhibitor? You know, Midastor and Serofinib were the first generation FLT3 inhibitors. These were good drugs. They were not really designed specifically to be FLT3 inhibitors. Serofinib, as you know, has been used in liver cancer, bladder cancer, uh, but we found that they also targeted FLT3. But then there was a new group of drugs, Quisartinib, Giltritinib, Cronolinib, that were actually designed as specific FLT3 inhibitors. And uh, one of them has already completed a frontline study. This is the frontline Quisartinib plus 7 plus 3 quantum first study. Uh, now, there's two kind of big differences between this study and the Ratify, which I think is important to highlight. So one is that the quantum first allows patients 18 to 75 years of age. So even though the label for Midastorin says 18 to 75, the population actually enrolled in Ratify was only 18 to 60. 
Uh, and in fact, 40% of the patients in the quantum first were above 60, which is a more difficult population in general with more myelosuppression toxicity. And the second is that these are all ITD patients, 100% in the quantum first, whereas in the ratify, only about 75% were ITD because it allowed TKD. And in general, ITD tends to be a more powerful adverse uh, driver. So I think in the future, as we get the subset data from quantum first, looking at ITD alone below 60, we'll start getting better ideas to where to put this in the setting of the ratified data. So this was the data that was shown at EHA meeting by Dr. Harry Erba. You see median survival is improved, 31.9 versus 16.8 months. There's about a 10, 11% absolute survival benefit at three years. Uh, that's good. And uh, overall, the tolerability was uh, as expected, there were no new safety signals. There has been a lot of concern over the QTC with quizartinib. A lot of that was at the older high doses we were using, for some of you who may remember, eight, nine years ago, 150, 180 milligrams. We did see potent QTC prolongation, but now at these lower doses, this study, for example, uses 30 and 40 milligrams. The incidence of grade two and higher has been very low, and we have not seen cardiac issues clinically with this. So I think that uh, it, it looks like a good combination. Uh, that being said, of course, monitoring should be done. If one starts giving multiple QTC prolonging drugs, azoles and Zofran and things like that, then this could lead to QTC. But in general, with good awareness and monitoring, uh, we have had um, not a big issue with quizartinib. Maybe I'll turn it to Amir. So what are your thoughts on the frontline uh, uh, data and since you put me on the spot, I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> Sounds good. So, you have you have better answers than I do, so I think we're we're in good shape. So, no, I think it's an exciting time. Yeah. What um, do you think between Mido quiz? How will we select? Uh, what would be the things you want to see maybe from the quantum first data? I, I think I've already seen a, a very good amount uh, that is very exciting and interesting. I mean, I, I think the it, it appears that the survival advantage is relatively similar to what we saw with. Mitostorin. I do think that quizartinib is a, is a more potent selective FLT3 inhibitor, and I think in that sense it may allow patients to have deeper uh, responses. Of course, the side effect profile needs to be kept in mind uh, along with QT prolongation, but uh, from what I've seen so far from the trial, that seemed to have been relatively mild to moderate. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it would be good to see more of the final publication and some of the subset data, and then you know, hopefully we'll yeah. have a more detailed story. So as Amir mentioned, what, is, what about the older unfit, right? So Azaven, is that it? Are we happy with Azaven for all molecular subsets? Now TP53, I think we all agree, in fact, uh, Azaven is not doing much more than HMA alone. And PLIT3 is probably the next bad actor where the combination, a little different from TP53, actually gives you good response rates. That's not the problem. 65-70% is very, very healthy response rate, but the survival is unfortunately not as good. So Marina Konopleva published this data recently in clinical cancer research, where with HMA event in FLIT3 ITD, the AZA event survival was 11.5 months versus AZA placebo 8.5. So it's still better, but very marginally better. Uh, so what can we do next? So this is where a lot of efforts are ongoing, initially in salvage. We're not discussing that here today, but we have done then Giltritinib combo. We published that in JCO recently, showing very encouraging synergy and response rates, and now moving it up front. So this was a recent uh, retrospective analysis, prospective two studies are ongoing, but retrospectively we looked at patients who received HMA Venflit 3 in the last two, two and a half years at MD Anderson, and at least on the surface of it, the signal for both CRCRI as well as true CR rate, which was 67 versus 32%, uh, 
uh, look good. And the early mortality, in fact, was similar, actually a little bit numerically lower, 7 versus 10%. So we think that these can be potentially delivered. Of course, this needs to be looked at both in randomized single arm and eventually, hopefully, uh, randomized uh, studies. Uh, and to that extent, there are two ongoing studies with Dr. Nick Short and Dr. Musa Yilmaz. I don't want uh, people to memorize this, but I think the key here is that these are still clinical trials and we're still optimizing dosing. This is not one plus one plus one. So I do not think one, sh well, we know you cannot give VEN 21, 28 days, Giltritinib 120 or Quisartinib 60. That is going to be myelosuppressive. So we have to adjust, just like you heard a lot in the ALL session, how the doses of Eno and Blina, et cetera, were adjusted. And currently what we're doing is we're doing 14 uh, days of venetoclax. And in fact, on day 14, we're doing an early marrow to see if we're already achieving marrow clearance or remission. If we do, we consider holding the FLIT3. So maybe 14 days of both of these with HMA is quite sufficient. And this data will be updated uh, at ASH. And eventually, I think that uh, if HMA then becomes a good background, uh, this would be a good combination, but not really for the 84, 85-year-old. I think this is a good one for the 60, 65, 70, where you could push through intensive chemo with 10, 15% mortality, all of those things. But maybe if your goal is to get to transplant, this could do this smoother and more efficiently. And again, the AZAVEN study that Amir is doing may help us get to that point. So I think here, uh, in the interest of time, I'm gonna just very quickly go through this case, Amir, and turn it to you for the last session, and then hopefully we can take a few questions in the last uh, eight to 10 minutes. So this is a 59-year-old NPM1 DNMT3A, 75% blast, induction, two consolidations, let's say with hydrocyterabine. She's in CR, she absolutely, you've discussed five times with her, does not want to do transplant. We all would want to do transplant here, but we have patients rarely after listening to everything, they say, we don't want to transplant. So the next question, what do you do? Do you just stop, wait, observe, we're done, give more, multiple more inductions, or do you uh, go for maintenance approaches? And in the few, if she were to go to transplant, would you still consider maintenance? So I'll turn it over here to you. All right. The NCCN guidelines regarding maintenance, uh, uh, pretty uh, brief up until recently uh, with the uh, approval of uh, oral azacitidine. So let's get to the data. So this is the big ticket slide, the Quasar study, the phase three study that looked at patients who had received traditional induction therapy and some cycles of consolidation mostly, uh, and who thereafter were deemed to not be candidates for traditional conventional stem cell transplant. Those patients either received oral azacitidine or received placebo. And as you can see here, there is a gap between those survival curves with a median overall survival of 25 versus 15 months. Um, and this has led to the approval of this agent uh, for patients following conventional uh, upfront therapy uh, for AML who do not have uh, uh, options for consolidative uh, management, including uh, transplant. Uh, factors that were associated on the Quasar study for long-term survival were intermediate risk cytogenetics, the presence of an MPM1 mutation, and, and as well as achievement of MRD negativity. Those three were the big items that predicted better survival. MRD positivity in general, according to multiple studies that have been done with various forms of MRD assessment, is associated with adverse prognosis. In fact, that's one thing we do know about AML and MRD is that it's prognostic. It's not necessarily predictive in most instances, but it is prognostic. Um, in this setting with Quasar, oral azacitidine significantly improved overall survival regardless uh, of, you know, of whether uh, the patient received placebo and independent of baseline MRD status. So 
if you received oral azacitidine, had MRD or not, um, you did better. As you can see, those survival curves um, are both separate and significant, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, with your eye uh, wider um, uh, distance between the lines with MRD positive at baseline. And so patients treated with oral ASA were more likely to achieve MRD negativity and had longer overall duration of MRD negativity, which is also important. The NPM1 mutated group um, seemed to do uh, particularly well. The, the sort of the curve that stands out in terms of both overall survival and relapse-free survival are those patients uh, who uh, had uh, NPM1 mutations um, and received oral azacitidine. So it's, uh, those patients did really, really well, and it seemed that oral aza uh, was uh, very helpful in that regard. So just some. Um, uh, items regarding safety and tolerability. GI events were seen and predominantly seen in the first two treatment cycles, um, as well as cytopenias, which required closer monitoring, and that is recommended every other week and as needed thereafter. Um, recommendations in, in general, besides close monitoring, is prophylaxis with antiemetics as needed, and as I mentioned, in my experience at least, these tend to get better over time. Just to sort of go through these relatively quickly, I'd like to leave, if I can, with a few minutes for uh, questions. Uh, other uh, attempts at maintenance, the Ratify uh, study with mitostorin looked at uh, uh, mitostorin uh, as maintenance and did not show a substantial uh, DFS uh, difference. The SORMAIN study is actually looking at sorafenib, another FLT3 inhibitor, but in the setting following transplant in FLT3 mutated patients and showed a uh, RFS uh, advantage, which was quite uh, exciting. Another study from China showed a survival advantage also for sorafenib following transplant. Uh, the quantum uh, first study um, uh, has also been looked at in, in patients uh, following transplant, and it appears that the duration of CR was longer with quizartinib. Uh, so that is also quite exciting. So I went through those, through those pretty quickly, but I thought it'd be good for us uh, to sort of sit down and go through some of the questions that the audience has asked. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Amir. So... So let's see, we have a few questions here. So one of these questions is, would you consider oral ASA as a post-transplant maintenance option? So I'm going to turn that to you, Amir. I believe that's uh, uh, being looked at, but that is not currently uh, what is recommended or approved. So I probably would not use that uh, in that setting uh, right now conventionally for a variety of reasons. You know, post-transplant is a, a tricky uh, environment. You know, you have to worry about things, uh, re you know, specifically uh, GI, GVH, uh, GI toxicity period, liver enzyme issues. Um, so, in general, it's, I think it's a difficult uh, area, but it requires investigation. And if it shows that there is promise post-transplant, I think uh, ultimately that's something folks can potentially look at. Yeah, I totally agree. The, the Amadeus study, I think is the one you're referring to, is being completed in the UK and randomized post-transplant oral CC486 study and will hopefully answer this question. So this question uh, I can take quickly. All the patients with mutations in TP53, do they have a poor prognosis or are there some mutations that do not? And uh, Dr. Fatih briefly alluded to this. So the broad majority do, uh, especially those with higher allelic burden or associated high-risk cytogenetics like deletion 17 or chromosome 5-7. That's about 75-80%. But there are some patients, and uh, Nick Short from our group and David Solomon from Moffitt have published two separate papers, came out the same time with similar data that if you have less than 20% TP53 VAF and 
happen to have a diploid or non-adverse cytogenetic, there could be uh, this group that actually did res del uh, quite well with cytarabine-based therapy and transplant. So, and of course, once you get into detail of the specific mutation and functional impact, is it a gain of function, loss of function, frame shift, there are further uh, heterogeneity. So not all, but in today's world, until you have detailed genomic sequencing, VAF, cytogenetics, I think we tend to treat most of these as uh, adverse going forward. Um, let me ask you this one. Uh, is there any clinical experience with lower-dose CPX in older therapy-related or secondary AML? I know that uh, the, the, the folks in industry are looking at various uh, dosing approaches uh, of uh, CPX. I don't think there is anything um, that is uh, recommended for conventional use. We already adjusted the, the, the number of days that patients get CPX, when it, whether it comes to reinduction at mid-treatment or with consolidation. But beyond that, I don't recommend uh, adjusting the dose of CPX for older patients. This is an interesting, you know, we didn't talk much about relapse just because of the constraint of time, but this question kind of brings a little discussion into that. So when in the course of targeted therapy for AML is differentiation syndrome likely to occur? You know, differentiation syndrome is a growing entity that everybody, I think, needs to get more and more aware with. We saw this with IDH inhibitors in salvage, but that was kind of milder and well-managed still. You have to be aware of it and manage it. Now with this group of menin inhibitors, which I think are very, very... Uh, important and hopefully major uh, drugs for relapse setting, five or six of these in clinical trial, we again see differentiation syndrome. And the timing is very hard to predict. So we see it anywhere from a few days all the way into months uh, into the th therapy. So I don't think that there's a uh, fixed time period. If I had to give you a general idea, that's more common in the first two months or so, two to three months, but you know, you could still see it out later. I just just to sort of uh, piggyback on that, I do think that there's probably some just over time we've realized uh, some variability and heterogeneity when it comes to differentiation syndromes as well. There's differentiation syndromes or the traditional one that you tend to get with atra and arsenic with APL and similar one with IDH inhibitors. I think some of the newer classes of drugs that are emerging probably have some heterogeneity regarding the type of uh, syndromes that emerge as a result of uh, uh, differentiation responses to therapy that could be uh, more robust that require probably a better characterization. And then this last question I'm going to do because I think it's very important. In your practice, do you do NGS panel in all patients with diagnosis? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think for that question, I have no ambiguity. We should do it. Now, do you wait for the full NGS? Probably not, right? Right now, FLIP3 is actionable. IDH in the older patients, maybe if you have trials TP53, and there are trials coming for frontline men in, so MLL and PM1 may fall in that bucket. But I think we should do it today. There is prognostic value to this. The, the recent ELN, as well as ICC and WHO, now all include a group of secondary mutations that are considered high risk, RUNX1, EZH, others. So I really think that, and of course, if we have this data, then we can use this for future treatment decisions. So I would definitely get it done uh, for your patient, even if you don't wait for that data necessarily. Any no, I agree, and I, and I think what I, one of the, I think the first slides that Novel showed were sort of the number of patients that don't even get mutational analysis, and, and that type of data that really worries me. Um, you see a patient in the community who is maybe older, maybe has 77 or 78, and they come to see me still, uh, where their local physician says, well, they said that because of my age, I, I'm probably not a candidate for therapy, and they recommended 
you know, very gentle therapy or no therapy at all um, without looking at mutations. Um, and that's, that's tough. I mean, I, in this day and age, I think that's uh, uh, inappropriate. Um, so I, I do think that we need to have uh, data for all patients, regard, you know, IDH, FLT3, and soon maybe MPM1, KMT2A, um, P53. Um, and many of these you need to check at points of disease evolution or relapse, right? So especially FLT3 can play a lot of peekaboo, you know? So, you know, if it's there at first, it goes away at relapse and vice versa. A lot of these uh, alterations do. So you don't want to miss the opportunity to potentially prolong a patient's life especially a younger patients. I've had patients who've relapsed the fourth time and you know, you're about to go in there and talk about end of life and all of a sudden the NGS comes or the mutational analysis comes back and patient has a FLT3. I have one patient just like that in her 20s who because uh, we found the FLT3 mutation on her fourth relapse is still alive a year and a half later. So these are all very important uh, aspects of caring for patients is to um, better characterize these diseases. So I think the you know, summary is that we have a lot of great tools. Now the next decade is going to be how to optimally use them, and hopefully we can reduce the need for intensive chemotherapy. I'm always envious when I see the ALL and multiple myeloma talks. Uh, maybe we can be there in the next 5 to 10 years. Uh, but yeah, I would like to thank you all very much. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NQY860. This activity is supported through independent medical education grants from AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated, and Jazz Pharmaceuticals.